This is the Washington Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Well, hello, everybody. We are back. You uh, may notice some changes around here. Uh, You may also have heard that we had an election. So uh, here to talk about that is our very favorite crew. We have Will Casey. He writes for The Stranger and was a former communications director for the Washington Democrats. Will, hello. How are you, man? Good to be back. Always nice to see you, Stefan. Appreciating the uh, clean shaven look. This is a uh, this is a new leaf for you to turn over. <laughs> oh, you know, I'm whiskerless. I just thought it would be an interesting thing to. Uh, yeah, had a little time off, so took to a razor. Uh, Shasti Conrad is chair of the King County Democrats. Hello, Shasti. How are you? Hi, Stefan. It's so good to see you. You know, it looks like we saved democracy and lost your facial hair. So. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was a fair price to pay. It was an absolutely fair trade. All right. Well, so let's get into that. So the big takeaway, of course, is that Tuesday's election did not bring the dreaded red wave um, and certainly not here in Washington. So I want to get both of your thoughts on what that means at the national and certainly at the state level. Uh, Let's start with state results. So Patty Murray reelected in the Senate by a pretty comfortable margin. Dr. Kim Schreier, just her race just got called by AP, uh, reelected in the eighth last night. Um, Marie Glusenkamp Perez, still ahead of MAGA candidate Joe Kent in the third as of the last ballot drop. Her lead has shrunk. Well, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, Looking at the legislature, it is looking like Democrats actually might pick up seats in both chambers. Wow. Steve Hobbs is on track to win the secretary of state race and Lisa Mannion beat Jim Farrell for King County prosecutor. So, you know, we can talk about all these races individually in a moment, but I really want to start out with messaging because Republicans ran heavily on crime and the economy and crime, (laughs) especially crime. And so uh, this didn't seem to work in the state. Well, let's start with you. Why not? Well, it's uh, no longer 1992, I think. Uh, you know, that's really the, just the answers. They suck at this. It's not really more complicated than that. I mean, uh, King County Council member Grimari Zahawai has been saying this over and over and over in a uh, op-ed in the Seattle Times, on his social media accounts, every time he's done an event, you know, uh, around the county, you know, stumping for other candidates uh, that, you know, yes, people understand the pandemic brought a lot of economic insecurity and that drives more property crime. Um but if you want to run on that message, you actually have to have a plan of what you're going to do that will fix it with some kind of evidence to support the fact that that plan will work. And the Republicans just didn't come with any of that kind of messaging. So, yeah. And, uh, you know, in, in some of your reporting uh, post-election, uh, you spoke with uh, Representative Joe Fitzgibbon, who said the people were concerned about crime, but the GOP messaging did not square with their lived experience. I thought that was quite interesting. Uh, Shasti, you know, Democrats really did need to make this election a referendum on GOP extremism, threats to abortion, democracy specifically. So how much do you think we can see Tuesday's results as a rejection of MAGA republicanism here in the state and and even in the country? I think there's no doubt that this election was a rejection of you know, the absolutely destructive rhetoric and policies that, you know, Republicans and all like in all, like not just MAGA Republicans, like like the Republican Party adopted the Trumpism and went in full bore and the Republicans overplayed their destructive, hateful hand. And I think they underestimated that people were going to actually fight back and they were going to see what they were doing and that, hey, it turns out we like democracy. We would rather live in a democracy than in the fascist state that we knew that they were pushing. All of the exit polls coming from across the country were saying that the number, you know, the top issues were abortion and fascism. And, you know, certainly economic policies and, and all of that was was a part of it. But that was what was motivating people. And we saw that in the primary back in August. And, you know, I think there was some concern that that energy was going to die out by the time we got to November. But the Republicans just they they kept pushing and, you know, we handily responded. I think also, well, I know we'll talk a little bit later about this, but I think it's important to note Um, the strong turnout from young people. And, you know, there's this tweet that's going around that's sort of like, well, surprise, surprise, you've put a generation through active shooting drills for their entire childhood. And now they're pissed and they're going to vote you out. And they don't want they don't want you to bleed them anymore because of the trauma that you're putting through them. And and also, guess what? They want to have a planet to live on. And (laughs) climate change actually is a top issue 
for them. And they can tell that Republicans don't give a shit. And so, you know, I think this win was really led by young people and it was led by women. And that is a full rejection of um, MAGA mentality that has completely infected the Republican Party for these last you know, six years. Yeah, I was very, very heartened by uh, the, the the youth turnout. And uh, I, I don't think that ultimately the Democrats could have won without that. You also mentioned women and, um, you know, Will, in the Strangers post-election analysis, uh, talking about the uh, the Patty Murray victory, which I should mention, she was easily reelected with 56 percent of the vote. I think a lot of people were very concerned uh, going up into this, that it was going to be closer than it was. Um, you all reported that a top smiley staffer warned that Murray would lose if she didn't pivot from talking about abortion to talking about crime. Um, and as Shasti said, I think a lot of people were concerned that abortion was no longer going to be a front burner issue. How are you seeing Marie's victory in light of that? Well, I think um, two things, really. First of all, if that Stafford doesn't think that, you know, voters concerns about crime as reported into a poll don't also include uh, dozens of red states making the right to choose a felony, um, then I think you need to, you know, watch a little less Fox News and go touch some grass. But like, I think <laughs> the other thing that Murray did very, uh, you know, effectively, I think, because it was covered here locally in King County, and she crushed in King County, right? Like, there's no way any Republican candidate on at least this platform um, is going to win statewide losing, you know, 70 plus percent of the vote in King County. Mm-hmm. Um, on election night anyway that's that's just ridiculous um and i think that part of it was you know smiley's ad about like oh the starbucks in capitol hill closing because of safety concerns uh and concern concern trolling over that murray had what i thought was one of the best press events sort of responding to that without having to put any you know paid advertising behind it she went with Gurmai Zahalai, who i've been talking about a lot you know carrying this sort of have a plan message um and state senator joe Wynn, you know, sort of representing that she's connected to the next generation of, you know, progressive leaders of color here in King County. And they went to a, you know, neighborhood small business around the corner from the site where Mur- uh, from Smiley's, you know, filmed that ad. And they, you know, posted about it on Instagram. She got their, you know, sort of younger audience engaged on that content. Um, and it didn't cost her a nickel. And I think that that's, you know, the kind of move you expect from like a savvy politician who knows her, you know, electorate. Yeah, it was pretty uh, smart uh, politicking there and messaging. And I've heard from a number of people uh, that they are extremely pleased to never have to see a Tiffany Smiley ad again. So there we go. Enough said on that. Um, So as of last night, as I mentioned, the AP called the eighth for Dr. Kim Schreier. I think it's worth pointing out that the eighth was designed to be a GOP safety. It spans the cascades. It is designed to, you know, uh, include enough of a red electorate to keep it safe for what well, Dave Reichert really. It was created basically for Dave Reichert in, in 2010. Shasti, this is your turf. Any uh, takeaways on this race? Well, I think it's really exciting. I was um, with Schreier in the uh, election night and she said it was the first election where she was up on election night um, and she's had some tough, tough battles because you're right. It was drawn for uh, for the GOP. Um, and I think, again, it goes back to what we were talking about, which is, you know, people in that district were like, hell no. And it took a while for Matt Larkin to get on to get on TV and get into an ad because once you saw him, he was awful. Like, you know, it was like people were just like this guy, like, ew, no. <laughs> and so I, I do think it's a, it's like Tiffany Smiley, too. It's like, you know, the Republicans picked some of the worst of the worst, thinking that they could fool people. And people don't like that. Like, they don't like that feeling of being conned. Um, you know, I want to give her team a lot of credit. I think that they did the work and they spent a lot of time across that district, making sure that they were reaching, um, you know, voters on the particularly in the eastern part of her district, like all the way out to to Wenatchee. Um, and, you know, I thought that her ad was very effective when she highlighted um, the Democratic mayor and also the Republican mayor that were supporting her. She really sort of played up the fact that no matter whether Democrats were in the majority or the minority, that she would be able to work um, with both parties. And I think for that district, that played well and it worked to her advantage. Um, and, you know, I really do think that it that people were motivated to make sure that we did not lose this seat. And that's why, you know, nationally, the Republicans would have power. And, you know, and and she's she's done the work. So I, I give her credit for that. 
I also want to give credit to the just dozens and dozens, hundreds of indivisibles who really put their all into this race, hit the doors, hit the phones, hit the text banks. Thank you all for doing the incredible work that you did. It really, really paid off. These races often come down to just percentage points. And these are the sorts of things as we know that make the difference. Um, Will, I want to talk about Democrat Marie Glusenkamp Perez. Uh, down in the third. She is still ahead of MAGA Republican Joe Kent, although her lead has shrunk, as you reported this morning, as of the latest ballot drop. I think it's cut in half from 10,000 down to about 5,000. Let's let's just frame it this way. Even if she does not win, what do we think the way that this race has sort of played out says about MAGA extremism and how it is playing in, in Washington, even in the red districts? I think the the main thing here is that, you know, Joe Kent only has two names. And obviously, you know, if you want to win in the third district, you have to have three names. James Jamie Herrera Butler, Butler, right, yeah. Marie, Marie Glusenkamp-Perez, you know, it's a cardinal sin of electability in Southwest Washington. Three names or people don't trust you. Um, but I mean, I, you know, it also helps if you talk about, you know, like, you know, the issues that working people care about, you know, housing affordability, uh, you know, safety for our kids in our schools, a lot of things that Marie was, you know, talking about, childcare costs, for, for example. I know she made a big, um, you know, point about how she has to bring her kid to to work as a mechanic because, you know, she can't find affordable childcare that would just require her to basically, you know, wouldn't make sense. Otherwise, she'd have to, you know, stay home all the time. And I think that that's something that really resonates with people. And, you know, Joe Kent has this just kind of eerie quality, you know, to him. I don't know if, if you all have seen his ads, but he's like, a little too handsome in some respects. Very punchable face. Yeah, yeah. But like, also, you could imagine him being like the lead in a Manchurian Candidate like film. You know, like he, he just has this like <laughs> off-putting vibe to me. Uh, that like when you combine it with his extremism, you're just like something is not not right with this person. And I think that like most norm normal people, you know, who aren't invested in this like death cult of of Donald Trump. Um, are responding to, you know, just like they, they can tell people have, you know, good bullshit detectors these days. Um, and I think that really, you know, his, his, uh, loss where, you know, Jamie Herbert Butler has held that seat for over a decade, um, really shows that, you know, it might be a very narrow majority, but there is a majority here for people who believe in the legitimacy of our elections. Perhaps he'd like to play some solitaire, Mr. Kent. Uh, that's a that, that's a deep cut for anybody who is my age or or, or much much older. Uh, ask your folks, uh, kids. Shasta, you, you had something you wanted to add to that. I just wanted to say that I think you know it's important for us here in Washington to take kind of take this victory because it is very possible that this flipping of this seat is what will give us the majority in the in the house of representatives nationally and you know i hear i spend a lot of time you know kind of crossing the country and i spend a lot of time on the east coast and you know washington state gets kind of like pushed to the side a lot as oh you all are just you know you're you're progressive it's blue it's easy out there who cares but this was a hard fought seat and you know i think it's also a bit of a right time you know right person right time right moment in all of that both both for marie and for joe kent because you know i think joe kent there you know the trumpism had taken over the republican party which pushes out a middle of the road republican like jamie herrera butler you end up with this really as will you know aptly described this like smarmy you know kind of like squidgy guy that you're like oh something's not right here and then you have marie who is like really standing up for working class values and it's just this kind of like all of this magic sort of comes together and and then you have the ground game that you know i know will was a part of carolyn long's team years ago like years of organizing and so when we also talk about that sometimes even when you lose that like you are still growing that organizing force that it matters and i think when we look at like beto and texas like like we still should take some pride in when we when we lose because there is a volunteer structure that gets built there's resources there's all of that sort of that really helped marie be able to step into the moment and be able to do it when we really needed someone to do it and i think that's important and if we, which I believe we're going to do it, she really could be 20, 219, you know, yeah. and that is massively important for the entire country. 
Absolutely right. And then people will uh, look at us differently, as you say. I think they they, they do tend to look at uh, Washington as, as a bit of a uh, kind of a, a blue uh, monolith out here. Uh, will some add to that? Yeah, I just also want to point in because I think uh is being very diplomatic and uh, uh, I think <laughs> appropriately so about this. Um, if folks haven't been reading the coverage of sort of the postmortem out of New York, um, you really should go look at it. Uh, it is reprehensible, frankly, um, that because of what appears to be basically a bunch of like older establishment power brokers in this, uh, you know, state party apparatus there that they completely blew redistricting and we might lose the house of uh, the majority in the house of representatives and give, you know, Kevin McCarthy, the speaker's gavel and every Republican nut job in Congress, uh, you know, subpoena power as they lead committees simply because like New York couldn't get it together. Like that is embarrassing. And like, if there's any sign that, you know, we're at a turning point generationally, that it's time to just let the people who've actually been doing the work um, over the last like six years to start to actually run things. They know what's going on and they know how to win elections. Like AOC was the only safe seat Democrat who ran a GOTV, you know, uh, operation, despite the fact that the governor's race was close. Like that's insane to me. That is ridiculous. Um, and so, you know, we've done a lot better of a job here, uh, or at least I should say the Democratic Party infrastructure has done a lot better of a job here in Washington State. Um, but, you know, it's because hardcore volunteers, a lot of them indivisibles in Southwest Washington, who I met when I worked for Carolyn Long, as, as Shasti said, stayed in the game, they stayed invested, and they have held you know, the powers that be to account for not devoting enough resources early enough in those races. And now we're starting to see a payoff. So anyway we also have great uh, state leadership like uh well, people like chastity quite honestly who are are keeping a, a lot of that in check so um yeah and, and and i do want to look at the national picture in just a second but just to stay at the state level because i think there are a few more things that i know both of you want to unpack particularly in the legislature um emily randall uh, is looking to win re-election in the 26th this was a hard fought district for democrats and i know they really wanted to keep this seat um like marie she ran very hard on abortion but she's also Emily Randall, very quality candidate, a leader with a strong track record. Will, just briefly thoughts on Emily Randall's win here? Uh, well, I mean, I went canvassing with her and sort of wrote about it in the primary. And like, based on the conversations I observed her having with voters, like, this is not a surprise to me at all. Like, she is just an incredible candidate. She's incredibly generous with her time. I mean, she leaves her personal cell phone number, like, and every mailer when she can't talk to a voter, which is a trick I'd never seen uh, from, a, from a state candidate. I've since been contacted by several who say, hey, I also do this. I'm like, well, you didn't invite me along to see it. So what? My, my rep, credit. Lisa Callum, uh, does that. I'll give her a shout out. Yeah, here in the fifth. Okay. But yes, please continue. Uh, and- yeah. And I think it's a nice personal touch. People appreciate it. Right. And I think that um, and, and I also want to say that it's it shows a certain amount of bravery in, in this, you know, political climate. Right. That you're you know giving out your personal contact information okay. when so many, you know, uh, women of color who are in politics face a lot of unpleasantness, you know, for just daring to try and represent their community. So anyway, and it also helps that um, her opponent, Jesse Young, is just, I think, the least uh, pleasant individual in Olympia, which is saying a lot um, on the Republican side. I mean, this man for four years now as a state representative has not had a district office because he treated his staff so poorly that the legislature, like nonpartisan staff, uh, told him he had to go to anger management training. And rather than just like go to therapy, he was just like, screw this. My my constituents don't need a district office. Um, and so I think that kind of childish behavior, you know, didn't really... Uh, do him any favors in, in a competitive district. They the Twitter thing that goes around where it's like men will literally lose an election rather than go to therapy. <laughs> so Shasti, I want to ask you about one of the more important wins for Democrats, which was uh, Claudia Kaufman in the 47th beating out uh, law and order candidate Bill Boyce for Mona Doss's old Senate seat. This is another uh, seat the Democrats had been very, very worried about. Any insight here into what happened? Yeah, I mean, it was such an important race that the Seattle Times called it like a bellwether for the nation um, uh, ahead of the primary. And, you know, I had felt all along that folks weren't actually tracking the ways in which that district has changed over the years. As, you know, rent has been rising um, in Seattle more and more people have been moving, you know, out to the suburbs. And so you're getting a different swath of folks that 
live in the 47. You also have, um, you know, it's one of the most diverse districts in the entire state. And, you know, I think the leadership prior to, you know, Senator Doss really often forgot about those communities of color. And so we've spent the last four years really building up relationships and, you know, trying to build coalitions. And, you know, and, and Claudia is a, was a known entity. You know, Claudia held that seat previously. Um, she obviously is well connected with the tribes. And, you know, I think folks saw that. Folks saw that, you know, they knew her, they trusted her. Um, and I do think that that district is slightly more progressive than it was several years ago. Um, and, you know, Bill Boyce, people didn't like his associations with developers and didn't like the fact that they felt like he wasn't being completely honest. I mean, I do think that this election overall, there's a lot of like folks are like Will said, they're, they're, they're good bullshit detectors and they're tired of people lying. They're tired of feeling like politicians are hoodwinking them. And I, you know, you meet Claudia and you know, she's a hundred percent real, you know, she's, she's just herself. And I think that that meant a lot to people and, you know, they had done a really great job organizing and I should give Mona some solid credit. And then I think Mona has shown up, been in, you know, been in that district, people knew her and it meant something that, you know, Mona was giving her blessing to Claudia as well. Well, I know you have a couple points that you want to make about this, but the one that I, I would love for you to lead with is what do we think this says about the perceived backlash against police accountability and reform bills, which we know had been a big issue in this race? Well, I think in a weird way, and, and stick with me here, because I think this actually does make a lot of sense um, because, you know, people absorb information in all sorts of strange ways. And, and I was talking with um Kent resident and uh, local political consultant Crystal Fincher about this. And so, you know, there's just not a lot of local media out in in the, you know, southeast part of the county. And as a result, like most of the way that those people get their information is from national sources. And so I think, you know, what we saw over the summer, uh, and I think this does actually have, you know, a significant um, impact on a lot of this like pro-police messaging is just how just for months, we learned more and more and more about the just ranking competence of the cops in Evaldi, you know, in response to what has been the worst mass shooting, especially at a school in years. Um, and I think that that's uh, something that really, you know, is hard to detect in polling, for example. Um, but I do think that this sort of common political conventional wisdom of, you know, the cops have this wonderful reputation. It's like, okay, yeah, sure. But they also realize, you know, people are starting to realize there's limitations on over-relying on that one possible, you know, one tool in the toolbox. Um, and frankly, it just didn't resonate in the same way. I will also say, uh, you know, Claudia wouldn't have been in this race, and I can say this pretty confidently based on the traffic we've seen from Southeast King County on our endorsements page. She would not be in the general election if not for the stranger. Um, she won by like 60-something votes in the primary over a candidate that, you know, Democratic Senate leadership had poured tons of money and some of their own personal donations into, uh, you know, no shade on the on the candidate who, who, who lost. But frankly, she was less than honest about her uh, role in bringing police officers back into Kent schools as a member of the city council there. And, you know, Claudia's, you know, total lack of um, was what persuaded us to, to back her. And frankly, she delivered, you know? So, I mean, credit to the the establishment for coming in and, and supporting her after the primary, but, you know, this was the right candidate for the right race. And, and I think that that was important that, uh, that we ended up with this matchup rather than, you know, dueling um, Kent City Council members. As ever, hats off to the stranger and their coverage. I'm always wearing a hat, so I can say that. Shasti, something to add to that? I was just gonna say, yeah, I mean, I, I, I actually do agree with Will on this one. And I think it does point back to the to what I was saying about the fact that, that district has changed, because, um, yes, there is a lack of, of um, local reporting down there. But to think that the stranger would be able to sway the 47th uh, district, just even a few years ago, would have been unheard of. When I first became chair uh, in 2018, the 47th said to me, don't send your Seattle types down here with their piercings and have them help us organize. They will not work. It will backfire. We don't want them. And now four years later, uh, you know, here we have the stranger basically, I think tr honestly, yes, giving Claudia the, the sort of, um, you know, help up to be able to make it through the primary and get us to this point today.
if you value what the work that the stranger does, uh, I will have a link uh, for donations. Uh, they they absolutely need it to, uh, to keep that wonderful paper uh, going. We're going to take a quick break. Be back in just a moment. All right. So some other notable races uh, in the legislature. Democrats are all leading in the 42nd up in Bellingham with Sharon Shoemake looking to take uh, the Senate seat. Uh, we are also going to have three black legislators representing the 44th in Snohomish, Senator John Lovick, April Berg and indivisible leader Brandy Donaghy. This is the second time. It's my understanding. This is the second time in the state's history that this has happened in an LD. So that is outstanding news there. So here's the big question for both of you. Um, as, as we've talked about, Democrats hung on to strong majorities uh, in the legislature, possibly picking up three seats in the House and even one in the Senate. Is this, dare I say, a mandate for more progressive legislation in the next session? Shasti, let's start with you. Yes, I think so. I think to Will's point about this sort of um, backlash um, about this, like, it wasn't just the Republicans that were saying that the police uh, accountability bills were too far. It sadly was a number of establishment Dems. Um, and they were chicken littling, you know, for months about how, you know, we were pushing, you know, we were sending them to progressive of elected officials and that there was going to be, you know, this backlash and we were going to lose seats. I mean, the, the Senate leadership was saying it's going to be a red wave in Washington state and we're losing seats because of how progressive we've, we've become. And, you know, I just want to say clearly wrong. And I want to see in session this upcoming year. I don't want to see the backtracking. I think we have been given a clear mandate by voters that they want bold leadership. They want real change that is going to actually impact people who are dealing with losing homes because of the rent prices are too high. They can't keep their mortgages. They are having, they're struggling with putting food on the table. They, black and brown communities who have been over policed since the beginning of time and are tired of watching their kids get, you know, killed. And, you know, like they're, we're done. We are done playing safe. And, it is time for leadership on the Democratic side to see that and to welcome in these like newer voices that have been elected to be progressive, to get things done. Um, and, you know, and 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 people are done with the sort of fake like rush $50 because the world is falling apart. That mentality doesn't work. And this election has shown us that and people are expecting us to deliver. And if we don't, then in two years, we're going to have to answer for that. And that we will not, um, we're not, we're not sitting by and allowing that to happen again. Will, thoughts here? Well, I think this all goes back to, and I know this is something that um, Democratic leadership in, in Olympia is going to be not thrilled to hear about, but it just comes back to taxation. It's about resources in the state, right? Like we have more than enough incredibly wealthy people. And I'm not talking about like people who own million dollar homes in Seattle, right? Like those, it's a different issue. We've got lots of problems to work on in terms of housing affordability, but like those aren't even the people who should be paying more, right? It's literally like the e extremely top crust of, of, of who we're working with here. And I know, um, you know, Noel Frame has been working on a wealth tax for several years now that should pass, right? Like, Figure out the enforcement mechanism here, because I think the real uh, crunch that we've seen in the last like four years, because this is three straight cycles now where the Democrats have either gained or held without losing any seats in, in either chamber. Right. Um, that the Republicans are not a threat. Right. The only thing that's a threat to the Democrats is their own incompetence. Um, and at the same time, as we've seen nationally, we can't keep trying to give people this excuse that like, oh, well, we can't fix housing because, you know, the federal government's not going to give us money from HUD. Well, take it from Jeff Bezos, you know, like we've got plenty of rich people, like like extremely uber wealthy billionaires who can pay to make sure that the city where all of their employees live and work um, is hospitable to everyone who lives there. Right. That is not a hard thing to understand. And if they want to move somewhere else, good luck finding a place as beautiful and, you know, uh, attractive to their workforce as Washington State. Right. Um, our, our state constitution doesn't allow a wealth or a, a income tax. State uh, Supreme Court is going to rule in January on the capital gains tax. 
um, whether or not that's you know constitutional. But there has to be a way to find revenue because, as we saw when we got you know these one-time federal funds, the state legislature was able to do hugely popular and important things for working people. They expanded anti-poverty programs. They shored up the social safety net to make sure that people didn't slip through the cracks. You know, during the pandemic. And all of that was only possible because we had a huge infusion of federal cash. But that's not coming if, if the if the Republicans take control of the House. And so we've got to find a way to do it on our own. And if they don't, you know, voters, like Jesse said, are going to be pissed at two years. This is something that we have covered extensively here on the pod, and we intend to do much more coverage of this in the coming year and, and push for these sorts of things Will's talking about in the next session. So stay tuned for that. Two last races that I want to ask you about statewide. Um, one is the Secretary of State, Steve Hobbs, uh, beat self-described nonpartisan Julie Anderson for Secretary of State. Um, this was a pleasant surprise, I think, for a lot of us. One thing is he ran as a Democrat and it, it, it feels like an affirmation of, uh, of democratic values and particularly in the role of secretary of state. That is one thing that I, I will just point out there is my own personal opinion, but also, uh, Will, I'll ask you how much of a spoiler role did Republican Brad Clippert play with his right in candidacy there? Just enough, just <laughs> enough, just enough to make sure that Steve Hobbs got through. Um, and I will say, you know, uh, it's great that Steve is uh, it, that he's in charge of the secretary of state's office because it keeps him far, far away from climate policy, which is where we all and Governor Inslee wants him. Right. Uh, and so I also you know, he's for those you know who aren't. Uh, Olympia sickos like the three of us. Um, Hobbs is sort of infamous for his former role as chair of the transportation committee and sort of blocking a lot of uh, climate investments in favor of more highway expansion. So glad to have him in the Secretary of State's office because I will also point out, you know, on our endorsements uh, right up of this race, we at The Stranger were really the only people who were talking about the actual sort of like policy qualifications for each of these candidates. As far as I read the rest of the coverage, a lot of Pierce County uh, Democrats, you know, great organizers down there, but clearly just had some hometown feelings for Julie Anderson. A lot of progressives seem to hold Hobbs accountable for a bunch of his bad votes in the state legislature, which like, don't get me wrong, they were bad, but they're also totally irrelevant to his job currently. Um, And he's got great uh, national security experience, right? He's served in the National Guard here for years, did great job helping them. Still does as a lieutenant colonel, actually. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and that's important because um, in case we've forgotten, you know, uh, foreign powers are not going to stop trying to attack our election systems uh, just because, you know, we've we've sort of put Russia gate to bed for a couple of years now. Um, so I think those are all really important factors. And, um, you know, frankly, trying to be a bit of a straight shooter here. Uh, my former boss, Tina Pabodowski, didn't do the greatest job, um, you know, advocating for someone in a race where she lost in 2016, because I think uh, there's still some hard feelings there. So I think there's a lot of weird personal grudges being carried out to this race that just didn't really focus on the actual qualifications of the candidates. And I think the, frankly, the better person won. Chastity. I, you know, I think it's also just important to note and like put the exclamation point that, you know, 56 years since a Democrat was in that seat and we had an opportunity to prove that a Democrat can win statewide for this role. What, why else, you know, like, like, of course, let's, let's, let's do that. And, you know, hopefully he does a great job these next four years. And, you know, if he doesn't, let's get another great Democrat in there. And so, you know, I think there's just there's no choice here but to do and prove that a solid Democrat could win. And we did it. And then finally, Will, there's one last uh, statewide race that I know you really want to talk about. Actually, it's a King County race. Um, and that is the King County prosecutors race. Lisa Mannion beat out Jim Farrell. For those of us who didn't follow the race closely, what's the takeaway here? Uh, basically, the people in King County want their elected leaders on public safety to have actual ideas about how to fix the problems instead of just pointing loudly at uh, images of street crime and saying, this is bad. Um, because frankly, Jim Farrell, and like, I will say this man was on the phone with me way longer than he ever should have been right. Like against the advice I learned on election night of his consultants repeatedly granted interviews with me throughout the, the, uh, the election, uh, you know, campaign. And for that, I give him a lot of credit, right? I think a lot of people, you know, these days, um, 
certain uh, law enforcement agencies in the local, the city of Seattle, for example, just don't work with uh, journalists who they think are going to be critical, you know, regardless of whether or not their criticism is earned. And so I will give him, you know, a certain amount of respect for that. But frankly, he just didn't come with any real arguments. Um, that was the main problem. He, his, his main sort of complaint seems to be that uh, the county government isn't talking sufficiently to the South County mayors, which unless you're a South County mayor like he was, doesn't really seem to me to be like the major criticism that he thought it was. By contrast, Lisa Mannion, 15 years as chief of staff in that office, incredibly well qualified on the on the specifics of all these policies, has earned a lot of trust from community-based organizations, doing restorative justice programs, understands that jail is something that causes recidivism. It manufactures more crime by making it harder for people to earn a living legitimately um, by having a criminal record and, you know, is working to make sure we address public safety, holding people accountable without causing more crime. Um, and frankly, you know, I'm very encouraged because she also made a very uh, intentional choice during her campaign to not seek any law enforcement union um, endorsements, which I think was a major liability um, for Farrell. He he tied himself very closely to Mike Solon, um, you know, president of the Seattle Police Officers Guild, who, you know, has defended uh, SPD officers who attended the insurrection, for example. Um, and it turns out that's not the uh, kind of political asset that Farrell apparently thought it was. We are going to turn to the national picture in just a second, right after this break. Okay, so let's talk very briefly about the national picture here. Uh, and Shastia, I really want to bring you in in a big way here because you went to Nevada, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. You really did some, uh, you, you, you got your miles in. Um, so let, let's start with uh, Pennsylvania. So John Fetterman, as we know, beat uh, New Jersey resident Mehmet Oz. And, and then Josh Shapiro beat an election denier for governor who would have handed a swing state to a Republican presidential candidate in 2024. So let's start with Fetterman. I, I think a lot of people, and by people I mean pundits, uh, had declared Fetterman mortally wounded after his debate performance in which he showed signs of a stroke because the man had a stroke. What, what did you actually hear from people on the ground about this? I mean, yeah, when I was in, I was in Philadelphia for the final weekend and people were, people were excited about Fetterman and they were supportive. I think that what, after the debate, there was really great framing to sort of say like, this man is a person with disability and how dare we let bullies win. And we are not going to put up with this kind of um, cruelty. I mean, you know, the, the Oz campaign denied what, what Fetterman's team wanted during that debate was for the journalists in the room to be able to see when his captions were coming up so that they would recognize why there might have been a delay was because he was waiting for the captions. The Oz campaign denied that and would not allow that to happen. That's the level of cruelty with which they were operating. And that was made known. People in Philly were talking about that. Like they knew, and certainly, you know, Betterman is from the Pittsburgh area. Like folks, folks had his back a thousand percent. And, you know, I think that it really was this, like this rejection of this sort of nasty politics that has really come from Trumpism. And folks were like, not on our watch. And there was also just like, there have been really solid organizing. It was one of the best troll campaigns we've ever seen. Um, while Fetterman was, you know, taking some time to recover from the from the stroke, his campaign didn't miss a beat. You know, like there was never a moment where you felt like there was an absence because they were constantly online. There were billboards, there were, at, you know, all of that. There was so much energy that it allowed some cover, like cover for Fetterman to get the care that he needed. And I think, you know, I, I know I used to work with a disability community. Like they're excited to have a representative. Like they're excited to have someone who is connected, who understands. And he did a great job of connecting what he was going through to the healthcare issues that people across you know, both the state of Pennsylvania and across the country are grappling with as well. And he talked about how everyone should be able to get the kind of care and support and the time that he was getting um, because of his access to health insurance and whatnot. And I think that that worked 
and it, wor- it would work almost anywhere, but particularly in Pennsylvania with such a working class background. Um, and it, it, and it, and he matched it, you know, he was a truly authentic candidate yeah. and that really mattered. Just a great candidate. And then I think Oz, uh, just really one of the worst candidates, uh, will as a comms person, I know you had some things to say about, uh, about Oz's campaign and their comm strategy. Yeah. And I just, I just want to say, I think that like the lesson for the national party to take from Fetterman's race, I mean, one is, um, stop trying to line behind, line up behind, you know, mealy mouth centrist in the primary. Cause let's not forget everyone in, uh, the establishment wanted, uh, someone who couldn't even win his own congressional district, Connor Lamb to be the candidate in, uh, in, in this race. And thankfully he lost, um, in the primary, but I think the other, the main lesson is just to, not shirk away from these culture war issues. I think there's a lot of like, uh, sort of tisk tisking among, you know, Clinton era consultants, you know, it's the economy stupid, right? Like don't, uh, get off your message. But frankly, Fetterman's campaign showed that when you pair that message with an attack that resonates about those, you know, actual stances on the issues, right? Oz was advocating for elites. He was advocating for tax breaks for rich people. And so what did they do? paint him as an out of touch rich person from New Jersey, which is like the most toxic identity you could have in Pennsylvania politics. And they didn't think it was stupid. They were like, no, this is a legitimate criticism. We're not just trolling him for, you know, we're not just trying to own the conservatives. Like we're here because this is making a point that will resonate for people in a way that like talking about an incremental way, you know, raise to the minimum wage or a cost of living adjustment to social security is just not going to break through. Um, and so I just think that that's something that a lot more Democrat candidates can do effectively um you know if they just choose to have the appetite for it and they they come guide it from a coherent framing being branded as from new jersey can be toxic wherever you're <laughs> sorry new jersey fam, fam. I, I i had to get that in there i used to live in new york i can say it you know yeah, so, okay well yeah i i just had to get in a gut punch there uh shasta you also spent time in wisconsin and you know the uh, electoral picture there is still unclear it looks like ron johnson probably will win re-election to the senate but on the flip side governor tony evers was re-elected uh, this is the first time that Wisconsin has elected a Democratic governor uh, with a Democrat in the White House since 1962. There were also some big gains in the uh, the state legislature. We've been looking at Wisconsin as a bellwether state in these last few elections. What are you seeing right now there in terms of trends? Are you th- seeing things that are encouraging? Yeah, I am. I mean, I will say I think probably one of my biggest heartbreaks from election night is Mandela Barnes not winning. Mm-hmm. Um he, I think, is such an incredible candidate. He's he is a bright star who I know isn't going anywhere. Um, the energy in Wisconsin was palpable. Um, I was uh, helping on a tour that was geared to getting young people out, and we were in a couple of small towns, and like the entire university is like emptied out with people coming to be excited about voting and getting engaged. And Mandela Barnes is that like. You know, he's the face of that next generation of leadership, like Will and I have mentioned. Um, and, you know, it, it's a heartbreaker. And, you know, I honestly think some of that is he did not have as much money um, at the end. More money was poured into Fetterman's race. Um, I think something like $27 million was poured into Val Deming's race in Florida, and she lost by 15 points. Mandela lost by one, one percentage point. And he didn't have, I mean, one of the wildest things to be like, I was the last week I was, you know, in these three state, three battleground states. And so, you know, I'm watching the TV ads come up and the ads against Mandela Barnes were just, they were nonstop and he didn't have as much money to be able to answer. And I think that that, I think that ultimately is a part of it. It's not about Mandela. It's not about him not being, you know, not, not the, uh, an incredible candidate. I just think that it was resources, but the energy is there. Uh, the Wisconsin Dems are being led by an exciting, um, you know, kind of young uh, party leader named Ben, ben Wickler. Yeah. yeah. He's been doing a great job there. Um, and they really have built a solid, you know, infrastructure for organizing and they should be, you know, really proud of the fact that they would get Tony Evers. They got, um, you know, a lot of really great folks across the, across the line. We just, you know, we just needed a little bit more support from, for Mandela. 
Evers' election is also pivotal for the 2024 election in the same way that uh, Shapiro's uh, election as governor in Pennsylvania was as well. Just wanted to put a point on that. So uh, and then, as we know, Georgia is headed for a runoff on December 6th, which may determine control of the Senate, depending on what happens in, in Nevada. We're watching that very closely. Shasti, what are your thoughts on what needs to happen in Georgia here? Yeah, I mean, this one is this one was another sort of heartbreaker because you look at, you know, uh, Senator Warnock, who is just like the best of all of us, right? Like he's just such a great person, great candidate. He um, he came to visit Seattle um, just like a month or so ago. And, you know, I'm sort of an old political hack. Right. And his his speech about what it was like to see Justice Katanji Jackson Brown um, and telling his daughter about that, like actually brought a tear to my eye about how powerful that moment had been. Um, and then you see Herschel Walker, who is just a buffoon and really, you know, speaks to the ways in which the Republican Party uses people of color and sort of thinks that it will confuse people. And I think, unfortunately, in Georgia, it not confuses, but it's like all the sort of evangelical Christians, it's like clearly they they don't actually believe in their own values or what they state because here's this guy who's like you know paying off for abortions and he's got children by multiple women and he's you know has domestic violence i mean there's all kinds of stuff with this guy um and here we are (laughs) but i will say before reverend warnock and john offsoff won two years ago we i worked on a senate campaign in 2016 we had hoped for a runoff for a Democratic candidate and we didn't get it. So this is proof that organizing is working. And I do believe we're going to ultimately win. Um, it's going to take resources. It's going to take volunteer hours. Um, I've already been contacted by a number of organizations who are like, if you know people who want to go, we'll pay for their room and board and we will help them get set up. So um, shout out folks want to go to Georgia. Let me know. I'm happy to help get you connected. Absolutely. So if you would like to get in touch with Shasti, uh, hit us up here at indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. So just final thoughts here. I I just want to button all this up by pointing out what everybody's saying. I'm not going to say anything new here. The Democrats defied political gravity in this midterm election. Biden has the lowest uh, approval rating of any post-war president at this point in his term. There's record inflation. The Dems have a trifecta. Usually that's going to indicate a wipeout for the party in power. And that just didn't happen. Uh, and as Shasti, as you pointed out, um, we had record youth turnout, which really did make the difference for Democrats. So the final question to both of you, and we'll start with you on this, is what do you think all of this says about how the Democrats should govern and run now with an eye specifically on 2024? Well, I think we just need to start recognizing that we are in a new era here. Right. Like this is there have been so many, I, I think, even to your framing of the question, not to by no means trying to call you out, Stefan, but I think that just this idea of, you know, the post-war era after World War II being like somehow a relevant comparison to what we're dealing with now. Sure. Yes. Rising fascism globally. There's inflation. There's a lot of challenges. There's definitely historical parallels, but like the information environment we're in these days, entirely different, right? Like cable TV, social media, these things are, you know, forces we did not have to contend with in in the 1940s. Uh, And I think that just the more that our existing policymakers and leaders within the party are trying to operate with a frame that is looking backwards rather than trying to project based on, you know, each of these election cycles being somewhat unique, Right. Like we had COVID in 2020. This is uh, an entirely separate era where, you know, this is the first election. And and I'm frankly surprised, given the three of our, you know, predilections that it took us this long to mention this. This is the first national election since we had an armed insurrection in the Capitol building. Right. Like this is a very different moment we are all living in um, and how we choose to engage the people, you know, in chassis of mine and the the generation behind us uh, to sort of say, hey, we see that you're anxious. We see that you're afraid. And here's how we're going to make sure that this country doesn't go off the rails and that you're going to be able to breathe the air 10 years from now and that summer isn't going to be dominated entirely by wildfire smoke and that, you know, blizzards aren't going to be knocking out power across the country every single year. Like, this is a moment where we need to be thinking forward and to need to be thinking big. Um, and I think it really should all start with recognizing that the federal government has, when we get power back, 
like has to start taking a much more activist role in regulating how people decide, you know, are allowed to vote, right? Because in Wisconsin, you know, you look at uh, a narrow, 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 the narrowest of possible defeats for a statewide candidate. And I, I think the Republicans have like a super majority in their state legislature because like Democrats, despite only getting like getting 49 or 51% of the votes statewide for those positions only ended up with like 33% of the seats. Um, it's not a democracy. Right. So it's uh, I think that that's what we've got to fix, you know, and, and we need a better bill than the one that we had on tap, um, you know, for H.R. one this year that wasn't able to get to the Senate because like that has to be, you know, priority number one um, come 2025 if we're able to pull this out again. There are a number of actions that Indivisible is going to be pushing for in the quote unquote lame duck session. One of them is the Electoral Count Act. There are a few others, and we'll be talking about that next week. So again, stay tuned for that. Shasti, just sort of dovetailing on everything that Will had to say, I'll give you the last word. With the understanding, you know, and I think Will is absolutely right, there has been a paradigm shift. We are looking at politics in a brand new way, and I think all the old models are broken, including the polling. And also, we don't really know what's going to happen um, if we have a split, uh, you know, between the House and the Senate, if, you know, somehow the Democrats pull off a miracle and keep the House, uh, if we could lose uh, both the House and the Senate. So with all those variables in mind, is there sort of an overarching strategy that you see that the Democrats need to adhere to governing wise uh, going into 24? I think it just it comes down to bold leadership that actually helps people like we just that's just the underline. And I think for too long, people have felt like government is broken. We have leaned into that rhetoric around the fact that like, sorry, you know, our hands are tied. Democrats can't do anything Uh, too bad. You know, and we've cowered a bit from from standing up um, against this sort of wave of you know, MAGA Republicanism and whatnot. And I think folks folks were like, we aren't going to give up and we're not going to go quietly. And they want that from their leaders as well. And so I think the more that we stand up, I think, you know, look, it this country has been gaslit, right? For the last six years, we have been gaslit both by, you know, obviously the Republicans, but by the media, <laughs> you know, by like, by the framing with which we have, talked about what is happening and i think people are saying no more we we are going to deal with the reality and we're going to fight back and we're going to stand up and we're we aren't going we are going to survive this and that i think is what we need to keep that kind of energy moving forward and keep supporting candidates like you know will was saying the establishment wanted connor lamb who was often in a sort of like, you know, a hunched over um, stance. Fetterman is like a come at me bro energy. And that is what that is what we need um, moving forward. And, you know, I know that there are a number of one of the best things about traveling this country is you get to meet such talent. And there are people like that who are leading in every state in this country. And we just have to continue to do what we can to show up support those leaders, um, make sure that they're accountable to us and keep doing the work. Lots and lots and lots to do over the next two years. And of course, we're going to have actions for us, uh, for Georgia for next week. A lot of ways to get involved there. We'll have information for everybody shortly. Uh, If there is something that you think should be uplifted, be sure and hit us up. And of course, Shasti had mentioned that she has some opportunities potentially as well. Indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. Uh, both of you, thank you so much. It's great to see both of you. Thank you, as always, for your expert uh, insights. Uh, you, you guys rock. Will, Casey, thank you so much, man. Thanks for having me. I always love to be here, Stefan. Shasti, you rock as well, my friend. Thank you. Thank you so much. Fun to be back. And that'll do it for this week. The executive producer of the show is Kat Pipkin. If you would like to see a video version of this podcast, head to facebook.com slash podcast. The email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to Lori Kowal. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. I'm Stephen Cox, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.